Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Race is on, and with IndyCar stars being talked about as possible future F1 drivers, which of them really has what it takes to make the jump, and just how difficult would it be for Colton Herter, Pato Award, or Alex Palau to do so? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to evaluate their skills and the scale of the challenge are Scott Mitchell and special guest, J.R. Hildebrand. Well, let's get the pleasantries with our regular guest out of the way first. How are you doing, Scott? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, but brush past me. We've got someone far more interesting on the podcast this week, so you can crack on. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome J.R. Hildebrand, who's effectively on loan from the Race IndyCar podcast, which he hosts alongside the excellent Jack Bennion. Well worth a listen. J.R. knows IndyCar inside out, contested the Indy 500 12 times, best finish of second, and was a very creditable 12th in this year's race. So welcome to the Race F1 podcast, J.R. Yeah, thanks, man. It's great to be on. Great to uh, take a little time while you guys have got a break and chat about some of these IndyCar guys. Yeah, well, it's good to have you to talk about the IndyCar drivers with a bit of an F1 perspective. But before we get into it, I do have to kind of establish your credentials for those who don't remember, because you did have your own dalliance with F1 uh, a few, well, more than a few years ago now with Force India. So perhaps you can quickly remind people of that, because you were a genuine contender for a, a proper F1 role. Yeah, yeah. We uh, At the end of 2009, so it was coming off of my uh, championship season in Indy Lights that uh, for the young driver test at the end of the year, which which at that time uh, was a true, a real true young driver test, if it, if it isn't still now, there was no threat of Fernando Alonso showing up and stealing your gig, that uh, we, Force India had a bit of a, a runoff basically of young drivers from a variety of categories and and my it's kind of a funny story that i think part of my even like being on the radar for it was actually because vj malia owned property in sausalito california which is where i grew up so he he owned the local papers um he had had a part of his global car collection there and so I got to know the guy that took care of his cars in in Sausalito in this like totally nondescript warehouse he had a you know, like an original 427 Cobra, BMW M1, like all of this crazy stuff uh, that you'd have just had no idea that it was there. So I had, I'd followed this guy home from a car show that was in town once, like, where are all these cars going to? And ended up discovering that they were VJs. And uh, I think it at least put myself and by the, I mean, this was years prior to becoming the Indy Lights champ, but I think kind of got myself in the, in the window with a bit of a prior relationship, but there was a few of us and, and I actually, we weren't privy to who all of the other drivers were that were involved in it. But, um, we did a simulator test, uh, at that time they had a, a, technical relationship with McLaren. So we were at Woking and did the simulator test there. And basically the, the two of us that were the quickest out of the sim were myself and Paul Duresta. And we got the test basically, or we shared the three day young driver test based on the sim test. And uh, yeah, I mean, for me, we'll get into it a little bit here, just in terms of kind of the differences between 
IndyCar and F1 and, and throughout some different eras. But, you know, at that point in my career, my trajectory was still pretty squarely on getting to IndyCar. At least that was the obvious kind of logical step was I knew I, I knew or I had a hunch at least that within a couple of years, there was going to be turnover in the IndyCar paddock and that a couple of those rides were ones that I was well suited to fit, whether it was going to be at Andretti, who I had won the Indy Lights Championship for, or some other teams ended up being Panther Racing with the National Guard and and then sort of splitting splitting ways with Dan Weldon um, a, a year later. But getting that test at, at Force India definitely put me on the map in a different way. Uh, it was an incredible experience for me to have, particularly just coming out of Indy Lights. I mean, at that point, you know, the difference between an Indy car and, a, and an F1 car at that stage was pretty dramatic. An Indy Lights car to an F1 car was like completely insane. You know, I had one button on the steering wheel for a radio in the Indy Lights car. So going from that to an F1 car was pretty dramatic. Yeah, it's such a cool experience and did did briefly create for some thought. I think had that test not been maybe as late in the year as it was, it was in November that year and, and usually as late in the season. You know, there was some real discussion about going to GP2 for a year or having some commitments ready to go in that direction that just didn't end up panning out. But definitely a cool part of the journey to look back on. I feel like we need to establish before we crack on to this, given the subject of um, this podcast is going to be the guys in contention at McLaren. JR, you are still an active IndyCar driver. You have tried the McLaren simulator. I, I can't rule out Zach Brown having offered you an FP1 outing or, or a 2021 car test at some point because he seems to have offered it to half the IndyCar paddock. Why don't you look, I don't want to have to get my lawyers involved, so I'm just going to let that one go for now. All right. <laughs> you can just see next to you a pile of contracts of all sorts of different teams. That seems to be popular at the moment in, in your part of the world. But anyway, yeah, I seem to remember when you were doing those, those running, uh, those tests, Force India were very complimentary about your skills in the simulator. I remember them being really positive and, and seeing you as a, as a very credible option. So evidently you made a good impression, even though it didn't quite work out. Scott, let's just quickly start off with a, a summary of the state of play with the drivers who are endlessly being linked with F1. Yeah, I think we've now had um, we've now had two of them have been tested by McLaren. So that's um, Pato Award and uh, obviously Colton Herter most recently. And then Alex Palau with this um, slightly, well, I was going to say slightly crazy situation between Ganassi and McLaren, but now F1's got his own flavour of that with the Oscar Piastri situation. So we probably, we can't really sort of throw any daggers in IndyCar's direction now because F1 is equally as bad. But the plan for McLaren is to give Palau basically the opportunity that, that Herta had. So a 2021 car run with a view to potentially having a Friday free practice outing. And what's really interesting, I think, there is while all of this contractual stuff is going on, McLaren were quite vague when they initially announced it on the F1 side. But the the intention is very much to get that done this year. So when the IndyCar season finishes and... I'm not going to say uh, Alex becomes a free agent from Ganassi, but the season itself has finished and he therefore has no in-season obligations. And I, having spoken to a couple of Chip Ganassi racing drivers in the past, know that in-season for them, it was very difficult for them to do anything outside of... They, they would need basically written consent from Ganassi to do anything outside of, of IndyCar. So I think the McLaren theory is that once the season ends, Palau will be free from any of that would be able to do a 21 car test. And then if he was 
very good in that, he would be in contention for one of these FP1 outings, which McLaren is obligated to to, to give to a rookie in, in, in two Friday practice sessions this year. It's part of the sporting regs. And because McLaren doesn't have a set of, you know, its own junior drivers um, at a level that's good enough, basically, to, to do an FP1 outing, Zach Brown's kind of assembled this sort of super team of options from IndyCar for Andreas Seidel and his guys to, to to properly evaluate. So you've got that situation where O'Ward drove in Abu Dhabi last year. Herta did a, a private test in, in, in Portugal. Palau is now obviously on the radar to try and do something. So it's not quite as far as the situation JR was explaining he found himself in, where there's this like old school shootout style for an opportunity. But it's not a million miles off that. It's just the opportunity is a bit limited in that it's a Friday practice out in they're fighting for. But then I guess once you've got your foot in the door, you're always going to believe that it can lead to, to something else. So it's a, it is quite an interesting situation that's sort of shaping up there. And obviously, JR, we'll get into the relative merits of these drivers a bit later on. But just for a driver in IndyCar, how excited will they be about F1, is it something they would still aspire to, even though obviously that these drivers are all having a huge amount of success in IndyCar, they're, they're top drivers out there, they're winning races, but will F1 always have that draw for people like that? I think there's no doubt that even for IndyCar drivers that F1 is still very much looked at as the pinnacle. And and if nothing else, I've had, I've had some off-camera, off-mic conversations with Colton about this that I think he in particular, and, and I, my guess would be that Pato and, and Alex share a similar point of view, that there's a very limited window for them to be able to take a serious go at this. And that there's a lot of things that these guys love about IndyCar racing. The racing itself, the fact that they could be on a number of teams potentially and be championship contenders. I mean, there's from a performance perspective, weekend to weekend, from a competitiveness perspective, it's hard to for any of these guys. I mean, we're talking about three different drivers that are on three different teams. You could easily throw a Scott McLaughlin or a Joseph Newgarden from Penske into this conversation. You know, who knows? Maybe they've already got a contract from Zach too. That you know that they're they're all in the mix. Four drivers from four different teams, or or whatever, however you want to look at that, can show up at any IndyCar weekend and potentially stick the car on the pole and go lights to flag the driver talent group is that deep but the resources that now a number of teams are bringing to the table are such that they're just within a hair of each other because of the spec nature of the car and and all this kind of stuff so i don't think any of these drivers are thinking that their careers are a bust if they don't make it to f1 because of the state of where indycar is and how competitive it is and the driver market now you know these guys are all making I mean, they're making 20, 30, 50% more money than they would have been just five or six years ago. Like IndyCar is, it's in its own ascent, I guess, from that perspective. But F1 is still F1. I mean, we're talking about even just from like a, I don't know, this is necessarily how the drivers look at it. From a business perspective, it's like an order of magnitude and then some larger than than IndyCar is. It's it's just a completely different, I mean, they're apples and oranges, really, in, if you look at the two championships uh, from that perspective. And so I think that these these guys, even that we're talking about here, they're not looking at F1 like at having some expectation that they're going to become world champion or something, you know, that they're going to go to McLaren and have that kind of opportunity. They're not looking at it apples to apples from a competitiveness perspective. I think they're just looking at it like, if I want any chance to 
even just know what this feels like to be competing against all of these guys at this level with these teams at this kind of height of the sport just in general. The only way to do it is to pursue that right now and take any opportunity that presents itself. I know that um, I remember speaking to to, to Pato in, in Mexico last year. He was there as a guest of, um, of of McLaren and had a really, really long chat with him. He, he, first of all, he, that guy is absolutely flat out. It was just, uh, it was one of the most just open and honest conversations I'd had all year. And it was the first time I'd met the guy. And he was just on the rev limiter, basically, the entire chat. But one of the things he, he was really, really passionate about and actually really eloquent on as well was this underlying frustration that he felt. And he said others in IndyCar felt that even at the very top of IndyCar, there still isn't a sort of wider appreciation for the job that they're doing, the level that they're at, and this 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 rivalry. So... Sometimes I do wonder if just that inherent desire to not—it's not about seeking attention, but almost that validation of the the job you're doing. F1 has just more eyeballs from a global point of view, and, and you want to be—I think you want to be respected, and, and you want people to see how how good you are. And I, I think Pato said this. I've spoken to Felix Rosenquist about this as well. Just. It's just so easy for people to underestimate what's going on in in, in IndyCar. And sometimes I wonder as well, guys like, I mean, Colton obviously came over to to Europe and and, and did a bit. Pato never really got like a fair shake. That bizarre stint he had on the Red Bull program where he got thrown into Formula 2 for, what was it, like one race weekend or something? Absolute like hiding to nothing doing that. Um, And someone like Alex, who... Um, had a really sort of piecemeal junior career because he was always, a, not hand-to-mouth as such, but he was always, the end goal was just to try and become a professional racing driver. He, he had no idea where that would be. I remember covering BRDC Formula 4 when George Russell won the championship and Palau turned up for a one weekend at Silverstone mid-season and, and was really good, by the way. But just like he came out of nowhere was like top six all weekend on his first go in the car and then disappeared. And it was like, who, who, who was that guy? And I wonder if just that feeling of, you know, I'm not getting my dues. I, 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 I deserve a bit more than this. I wonder sometimes if that can also come from a guy who doesn't, who, who doesn't feel like they got a fair crack at it on that major scene outside of the US as well. Someone that did a little bit at the start. You look at someone like Herter who was really highly rated when he was in British F4 alongside Lando Norris. And there was even a little bit of a feeling that he might actually be slightly faster than Lando. He was just, uh, well, he was Colton, so he was just like binning it basically a little bit a little bit too often. I, I, I'd be interested actually to know your thoughts on that, JR, because you came over, was it like the Formula Palmer Audi Autumn Trophy or, or, or something like that? But the majority of your career was obviously in the US and you said that your focus was all about being an IndyCar driver. Do you, do you think there is any element of these drivers that have had like a little bit of a taste of that European scene, that F1 ladder, but never really got a fair crack at it? Do you think there's any unfinished business from that point of view? I think it's a combination of a couple of things that you've mentioned. One, that definitely factors in that just the guys that have had a little bit of a part of their careers or they've they've looked to moving their career in that direction and just haven't really had the right opportunities to do it at various points or whatever, that that definitely factors into the way that they think about this and kind of the perspective they had. I'll throw Joseph Newgarden into that as well, because he spent a couple of seasons in Europe and obviously Alexander Rossi, 
ascended that ladder, didn't race in the States almost at all. So there's a few other guys that I think fit in a similar category just in terms of maybe the way that they look at this whole thing. The other piece of it, to your point, yeah, I think validation is a part of it. And that that's that to me is actually something that's become even more pronounced within the IndyCar paddock just in the last few years. You know, you had you had the occasional you had Scott Dixon a decade ago that was like, why did this guy not ever get like a fair shake in F1? Like that but he was he was kind of an isolated case of that maybe being something that you felt like was in the back of his mind that he had some frustration about that and and he's kicking everyone's ass in IndyCar. And so there was a bit of a disconnect, I think, within our side of the industry of just that seeming like a missed opportunity for him at some point or another or something that we we wished we'd have gotten to see but didn't. This now, in part because you've got more young guys, in part because the championship just as a whole is more stacked I think that that starts to spill over a little bit that because IndyCar, it's like you've got this thing that I think even from an international perspective, you, I, I've spoken to you know F1 drivers, Fernando coming over, kind of being in the IndyCar world for a couple of years, just doing the 500. He's very complimentary of the just overall talent pool in the IndyCar series. And, and I, so I think there, I think if you're just looking at the intra industry communities, not thinking too hard about the fan base and kind of the global perspective or something. It's my sense, at least you guys maybe have a better feel for this than I do, but my sense that there's a pretty high degree of respect for the caliber of engineers, drivers, teams, you know, whatever on the IndyCar side. I mean, how could you not have a high degree of respect for Roger Penske and Chip Ganassi and the things that these guys, that the, those those two guys and those organizations in particular have done over the span of 20 or 30 years now? So you have that that's going on and the drivers feel that like they feel, okay, people, we have the respect of a lot of people, whether it be in American motorsports, in NASCAR world, or internationally in F1 and whatever extends beyond that. And yet the championship itself has such little visibility and kind of recognition relative to Formula One in particular. And and so you kind of experience that. I think these these drivers experience that in a whole different way that like my social following sucks compared to like all of these other guys you know like we're just stuck within our own little bubble of 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 what still in a lot of ways feels like particularly in this in this drive to survive era where formula 1 is is just the hot ticket in town and you're seeing you're seeing it at events like Miami and even Coda that like you could have rolled out to Coda 5 years ago and it was like easy to get a VIP garage pass. You could just go wherever the hell you wanted. You could walk around anywhere of the course of the weekend, like bumping into people. And it was no big deal. Like it was like an off weekend for everybody. And now these events in the US are, you know, they're, they've got like Indy 500 level attendance figures and, and, and all of this kind of stuff. So I think there's a little bit of, I don't want to say feeling left out of that. But just seeing that happen, I, I'm just speaking for my own perspective on this. Like, I this is not something that I have any particular insight into what these how these drivers that we're talking about specifically look at it. But I guess my my just uh, 
general perspective or, or general feeling about the whole thing is you're seeing people on a broad scale globally really start to recognize all the things that we've been seeing about F1 forever and that we feel like a lot of those things are present in what's going on in IndyCar right now and it's not really getting that same boost or or hype factor. It's not suddenly something that's culturally relevant. And so I think that, you know, it's it's hard as an athlete, particularly in today's modern sort of celebrity culture and all this stuff, I think to not feel like, hey, like we, I should be I should be be able to tap into that a little bit. Like I should be getting a little bit of the the trickle down of of this all happening and uh and wanting to just feel a part of that. I mean, that that to me is is one of the things that just in recent years has really I think made F1 feel more like F1. Like it's it's really made it feel like this other step in terms of where you're going in your career, where, where for a period of time, like at the tail end of kind of like the Bernie era and the early before drive to survive with Liberty and all that kind of stuff, it just, for whatever reason, within the industry, they felt a little closer together. And now that gap is that gap that's always been present in terms of the businesses of the sport is now just a little bit more apparent. But you've also got that problem with the drivers who are top guns in IndyCar. It's not a finishing school for F1, is it? And if you're going to move across to F1 with a back-of-the-grid team, for example, or even try and do F2 before doing it, you know, you can't throw these guys we're talking about into F2 at this stage, can you? So there's almost a, not a victim of your own success, but you don't want to throw away a great career in IndyCar with great teams for half a chance, if you want to put it that way, at Formula One. So I guess that's the that's the challenge, finding a way across that disconnect because you're not going to jump into a race-winning F1 car unless somebody's really, really enthusiastic about you, I guess. Wasn't that what happened um, a few years ago? I'm sure uh, Joseph Newgarden talked about this when, when, when he was probably at the point of, if you're going to make a, a switch, this is the guy who could potentially do it. And he's at a point in his career where there's still time for him to do this. And I remember, I'm sure it was around the US Grand Prix, maybe he was there as a guest at Cota on the Friday or something. And and the, the chat was, and I think Joseph might have even done an interview and said this, that why, why am I going to switch to drive for the 11th team and just make up the numbers for a year or two? Like, I, I get it. I, I don't see why you would. As much as we talk about F1 and sort of the appeal it's got and and all of this, you know, these guys are so good at IndyCar precisely because they don't want to make up the numbers. They're properly fierce competitors and they're damn good. So what you, I just don't think you would necessarily want to go and just sort of throw it away for the sake of qualifying 18th and trying to sneak through to, to, to Q2. That doesn't sound like the most fun existence, even if you do get to call yourself an F1 driver for a year or two. It's about whether you want to have the experience of of having done it or not. And, and I think that to your point, you'd have to you'd have to go into it a little bit with that, at least as the baseline for how you set your expectations. Like, you know, for for Colton or Pato or these guys, maybe they're in a position they're still young enough that they might, you know, if they if they have a couple of great years and either McLaren gets, like, let's say they ended up in a race seat, McLaren gets their their they have the potential to be among those top few teams again, you know, they're whatever they, they make the right decisions. They have the right investments. They do the right things over the next few years. Like 
maybe that's a, a stepping stone just within the same organization to being able to have competitive races. Maybe they show up and kick ass and they're on Lando's pace or something within a couple of years. And then they're in the discussion for, you know, following somebody else's footsteps at another team. I would also say that because those guys are quite young, I think they also have the, they spent a couple of years in F1. They're going to be right back in just as good of a seat as they left from an IndyCar perspective, I think if they come back. So I, I guess I don't, I don't view that as being altogether, uh, you know, deferential to how they would look at this. But I, I think overall, it's just you can track the career paths of a lot of drivers in F1 right now. There's very few of them that ever end up in teams that, whether however they perform, you know, that uh, that can genuinely compete. And and at a point, that is the great thing about being an IndyCar. So that's sort of the paradox of this whole thing from that perspective is, you know, how badly, how Joseph Newgarden is a great example of a guy that he's just hyper competitive. Like the, the idea to him of even spending a couple of years in F1, like he doesn't care about getting a huge paycheck. He doesn't care about some of those things. He wants to have a shot at it every year. And so for him, it hasn't made sense for a lot of, and, and he was in this conversation, unfortunately at a time when there wasn't really this, you know, we go through these waves of kind of wanting to see an American driver in F1, and he just wasn't kind of on the right side of that either. So I think he, when it was in the frame for him, it was, it was a higher risk scenario, basically. Whereas for these drivers now, I think particularly because it's within an organization that they're currently already associated with, and they can come back to an IndyCar, maybe a little less so. And I have to say, Scott, that interview you referenced with Newgarden at Cota, I did in 2017. I think he was there with <laughs> sorry, Shell. Sorry. So you've remembered it well, so I, I take my hat off to that. And I think the example he used was, why would he go and drive for Toro Rosso to drive around in, I don't know, 12th place when you're driving for Penske? That was his first championship year, I think, 2017. So, yeah, you'd be turning your back on a lot to do it, so you need it to be a good chance. Well, let's get a little bit more into the the challenges of F1 and IndyCar because they are very different in terms of the, the driving skill. Tremendous ability for the top drivers in, in both of them, but very specialist times we're in in uh, motorsport now. You can't jump from an IndyCar to an F1 and vice versa with relative ease, certainly not for road and street courses, as perhaps you could do in the past to an extent. So how big do you think the chasm is between F1 and IndyCar in terms of that that driving challenge, and I mean not just the driving, but the driving and the technical and the core business of being a race driver. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to think about because we've gone through some. I mean, if you really if you take it way back, we've gone through a lot of different eras of of what those differences are and what makes it easier or harder to be able to make that make that change. I mean, I t- I, I like I I always like kind of having this conversation about you know drivers just getting out of their comfort zone going and do it or not even out of their comfort zone just getting out of their swim lane like going and doing something different just just because like i i love the era of aj and mario and parnelli jones and jackie stewart and jim clark and all these guys they just went and drove everything and they won in everything and you know we i i personally still look at those guys in a different lens even than senna schumacher dale earnhardt you know richard petty Rick, you know, Rick was actually, Rick did a lot of that, I guess, in the US. But you know, those were drivers that were 
incredible championship winning the most elite drivers, but whether by choice or otherwise, we really only got to see it in one discipline, right? But looking back at that era, like I've I've got the chance to drive a lot of those cars from like the 60s and 70s. And they're all kind of terrible in their own way, right? Like they're they're really, and I say that sort of jokingly, just to say they're amazing, right? But they're they're all very unrefined, and so the fact that they're all sort of unrefined makes it that you you can rely, I think, much more heavily just on your innate skill to show up and drive, and that that counts for a lot in terms of your pace versus somebody else's even bouncing around between different cars, I sort of fast forward to, and and I think that that to a degree was true throughout motorsports, like through the nineties, even that, you know, you you look at early, the, the cart Indy cars from the, you know, early to mid nineties, and they were super raw still, you know, like they were not these precision instruments. You would still have guys that would, you know, finish, what you know you, you wouldn't have more than five or six cars in the lead lap at some races because they were just that that difficult to drive basically that difficult to extract the maximum out of so you'd see Alan Sir Jr. Rick Mears these guys that would just like completely destroy everybody you know over the course of of events we've now obviously moved into just a much to use your term a specialist era i think part of that is because the cars themselves are so much more refined and they're such precision instruments in whatever the direction is that they've gone and so that's kind of manifested itself in different ways like when i had my f1 test uh you know the the difference between an indy car and an f1 car was pretty dramatic across a bunch of different parts of the spectrum um, the car itself was the, the this was pre-hybrid for the the Formula One car, so it was super light. It was really small, um, so it was really nimble. It was uh, you know it wasn't a turbo car, so it was very like instant, immediate power delivery. I mean, I was kind of prepared for like a lot of arrow. I was prepared for the car. I was prepared to have to work really hard to maximize what the car was going to give me through a high speed corner or deep in a heavy braking zone. I was shocked by just the instant acceleration of the thing because the power to weight ratio was just that good relative to an Indy car. Like that on paper was not something that stood out, but when you actually drove the car, it was a huge difference. And then once you, I mean, the biggest difference between myself and Paul DeResta at that test, I think I, I had, because I was so focused on it, I, the one, the one, uh, feather in my cap was that even by the end of the test, I was a little tiny bit quicker than Paul in the two really fast corners at Hareth. But, you know, maybe, maybe driving on ovals was helpful for that, but I just could not over, you know, three half days wrap my head around the low speed behavior of the car with a 13 inch rim and a big sidewall tire that's deflecting a lot through the corner. Um, Like just the feeling of the car was totally alien to me from that perspective um the amount that the car moved around just on the deflection of the tire was completely bizarre like not something that i was used to thinking just before that you know i was training a lot with scott dixon at that time he had gotten his test with williams that was in a you know still the treaded tire or the grooved tire era so you've had some of these things over time that have been really substantial differences now i think the cars in a in a weird way because 
because the tire technology, and that has so much to do with how the driver feels the car on the road, because that has kind of converged a little bit. That aspect of just getting in the car and getting pace out of it for Pato and Colton in their tests has not maybe been quite as significant. The The Formula One car has gotten, it's grown, it's gotten heavier. So that dynamic of it, it's not, I don't think, super nimble, even though it has a lot more downforce and altogether it's a lot faster than an Indy car is. It's kind of... It, it does things like on a on a scale. It does things just better, kind of across the board. It's not like it does every it does anything in particular that much differently. Um, I think that's kind of helping these guys. But ultimately, to actually answer your question, what like today is the biggest? I think the biggest hurdle to overcome for these guys is just the fact that. They don't know any of the tracks the way that these other guys do, and they don't know, and you've got simulator time and all that kind of stuff, but that just, we just know that that's not, when you show up for the race weekend, it just, it isn't, it isn't something that instantly translates. Um, And that Formula One, like IndyCar, like everything else, has just become this precision exercise for drivers that you've got to, you were gut, you're going to get measured against your teammate and you've got to be within like a 10th and a half. And that extracting that tenth and a half is not down to strictly down to talent for especially for drivers that are coming in from outside of this realm. That tenth and a half is is going to be super hard to find just because of the systems of the car and all. You know, you've got it's a one lap qualifying effort in most of these situations for these guys. Like the the number of reps you get with the car in that exact you know IndyCar. Like is you just throw another set of tires at it and you're you're in full qualifying mode all over again. And usually you got a couple there's no there's not a bunch of different settings that you're running the thing in. There's not different diff modes. There's not all this there's there's not there's no hammer time. There's no, you know, there's no like party mode that doesn't it doesn't it doesn't exist for for IndyCar guys. And these young drivers in IndyCar, I think, would very rapidly they'd have the bandwidth to like figure all of that stuff out, but to have the time and there's just so many things that are a little bit different that to really extract the maximum out of all of those things, it's just, it's just a lot to do. So I think, and that's not to say that I don't think Pato or Colton or Alex, those are the, if, if anybody can do it, those are the guys like, and I, I wouldn't put it past them. To be, I think you could have you could have Colton Herta show up at a Friday practice this year and be shockingly fast. Like there is no question in my mind that he has all the tools to be able to go and do that. But it's just a big ask because there's a lot of things that they're not that they just haven't been in the swing of of doing in the same way that all these other guys in F1 that are just that have just the same pedigree have been in the swing of doing so that's that just all by itself is a lot to you're relying a lot on on the drivers switching over actually being above and beyond from a talent perspective to be able to to make that happen you mentioned um you mentioned precision uh in in that and it was interesting because as you would talk talk in the first part of your answer that that was what was jumping out at me was i was was, was what i was going to say was just the 
the precise nature of uh, what you have to do in, 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 in Formula One is something that I spoke to Pato and Colton after their, their McLaren runs last year and earlier this year. And they both, one of the things that they both held their hands up to was that they, they didn't put their laps together and they feel like, you know, uh, you know, give me another day, give me another day and a half in the car and I can get there. But they, they couldn't in the day or two days that they had in this situation because or you've got individual, you've got your individual sectors and you've got your mini sectors and it's like, oh, if I hooked everything up, I, th- I think actually the pace was there. But it, it's so difficult to, to, to do that. And there are so many little precise things between the two that are so different. I mean, you only have to hear what any driver that even in the junior categories, if they come out of something like Formula Renault and then step into Formula 3 and suddenly they're on Pirelli tyres and they're like, what's this? Like, how do I get the most out of this? And the best drivers or the drivers that thrive in F3 and F2 are usually the ones that get their head around the Pirellis quickly. Um, so that that's one example. I know you have the cliched thing whenever someone from outside F1 comes and drives the car. Oh, you know, oh, I couldn't believe the acceleration. Oh, my neck went the second I touched the brakes. Oh, it was really physical by halfway. You know, my neck was crying and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, they're, they're cliched for a reason because they, that is the experience every driver has. That it's it, it's correct, but there's so much there's so much more to it, and it's not just from an F1 point of view because there is an arrogance in F1 that you know are the you know because this is this is the pinnacle. These are the hardest and the best driver drive drivers and most technical machines in the world. You can't just come in and and, and do it. But it, it does a disservice to what makes you so good in IndyCar when. When I've watched more IndyCar over the last three or four seasons, and I've really, really enjoyed getting into it properly, some of the qualifying laps in particular, the level of improvisation going on behind the wheel is astonishing. It took to a to a point where you couldn't do that in an F1 car and be quick because every time you're going slightly sideways in an F1 car, you're going slowly. But whether it's you know in the Indianapolis Road Course or like Toronto, for example. You have diff- completely different circuits, but you're just having to, to, to a degree, wrestle those cars around those tracks. I don't want to do IndyCar a disservice and say, oh, it's you know, it's just the sort of brutishness that you don't have in Formula One. But they're you watch them, and it's just you. Even if I can't explain them, but I haven't driven those cars. I I can see the nuances that make someone so damn fast over one lap in an IndyCar. And I go, I bet that driver could be great in an F1 car, but I bet they'd be getting that lap time in a completely different way. That's the thing. It's also something that Marcus Ericsson, I spoke to him earlier this year when I, I dropped in on the, the first Indy road course race, he said you could improvise a bit more. And that's not to say it's easier. It's just a bit different. For, Formula One cars, so much, particularly with what JL was just talking about with the uh, the 13-inch the tyres when there was all that movement in the when they're being loaded up that the entry phase is so critical because that's when the cars at its most extreme in terms of limit behavior now that's true of all racing cars to a degree but i think f1 cars take it to an extreme in that a big amount is set with you being there so i do think there's an element of which some drivers are better suited to one or the other it doesn't necessarily mean fundamentally better or worse but i'm interested to see what you think jr about that that difference in approach that scott was just talking about about the way you can slightly improvise a little bit more in, in an Indy car than maybe in a Formula One car. Do you think that's a legitimate position or is it an oversimplification? No, I, th- I mean, I think that's part of the requirement of being good in IndyCar is just being able to adapt on the fly because the 
And I think it's also, you know, it's a little bit of why sometimes drivers, any just drivers from anywhere, not necessarily, you know, I think of Scott McLaughlin even in this in this context coming over to IndyCar, that there's you can kind of back into figuring out what you need to be able to do in an IndyCar a bit by by just if you're adaptable enough as a driver, if you're willing to try enough different things, like you'll kind of feel it and just work your way backwards into it a little bit. There's a really high price on being able to in, in, in an IndyCar particular, and, and this is this is true among high-performing athletes of any kind. So it's this, it's that you'd find this, I think, with the best Formula One drivers the same way that you'd find it among the best IndyCar drivers. I think of Colton in particular among the drivers that we're talking about here in this context, just because in IndyCar, he's been the guy of all of these, of, of, of the entire Indy, the current IndyCar paddock, basically that you occasionally just see completely wax everybody in a qualifying session, like just in his own zip code of, you know, he's on, he's on the hards when everybody else is on the soft and he's still the fastest guy in a session. Like what the hell is like, how, what is happening here? You know, like what are they finding that's making this work? And part of it is them getting, they know exactly what he needs from the, he wants from the car, what he needs from the car. And they're able to deliver that to him. But then he is able to operate in this zone of just complete alignment with the car and with the track and he doesn't it's not pre-programmed at all for him like so so in in contrast i think to f1 where you still need for that you still need to be able to extract the maximum performance out of the car just in the moment like being able to be totally in the moment is this is the thing that enables any great driver in any circumstance to get the most out of themselves but there's another part of it that is it's more refined in terms of the buildup and like how you get 90% of the way there. It feels like, you know, like you have to do this 90% part kind of exactly as prescribed. And then the last 10% is still on you to, to, to like adjust and find that little bit of grip that wasn't there on the previous lap and all that kind of stuff. Whereas in IndyCar, a much greater part of the overall performance of you versus another driver and where you end up stacking up in a qualifying session, I think comes down to that, which is where you see these, where you see it, A, just be more mixed up in terms of where guys are at, because that being in that place, being in that mental zone is a bigger factor. And so whether guys are there or not matters more, but it's also where you can just see drivers take a bigger step relative to to other drivers, other teams within the paddock is is that part of it can be such a dramatic factor when you're going to street circuits that are different every year. I mean, that's the other thing that I think about just going to the same track year after year. Indianapolis on the Oval is the only place that you can like really depend on anything that you did last year to be the same this time around. And it doesn't seem like anything even changes, you know, it's just because the tracks, you know, sort of evolve that much because of weather and whatever else. So, you know, that you think about street street course racing being just a completely different animal in, in IndyCar as it is to F1 and how many tracks are kind of like that. The there's, you know, even in just in the current spec of the car, some of the aggressive nature of the way that guys drive them is designed into the current IndyCar, right? Like it's 
it's not supposed to be a high, super high downforce thing that's that's high precision. So I guess just to wrap all that up, like there's a bunch of things that create for I think what you see in the differences between the way that IndyCar drivers extract performance and the way that F1 drivers extract performance. Um, and and those two things are definitely are definitely different. I would be fascinated to see how the top guys in IndyCar and whether that is the younger guys who, um, to make a, a slightly lazy observation, would be perhaps a bit more prone to those big swings in in performance. You know, when it's there and they can suddenly pull something magic out. You're looking at Pato, Colton, uh, Alex as as guys who just do one of those qualifying laps where you're like. Uh, where's that come from? He's six tenths up the road. And then I, what, one thing you were saying about like the race stints where a driver just is just, just pulling away, pulling away, he's doing crazy things on a tire. No one else can get near. That feels very much like a new garden Dixon willpower kind of, kind of trait. But I would be really fascinated to see how these guys deal with the suite of tools that you've got in an F1 car, especially a modern F1 car to manipulate the behavior in a way where, the IndyCar is, and I don't mean this in an offensive way, it's a more rudimentary set of tools. I'm, one example that sort of sticks with me is I think it was in Toronto this year where power just had chronic understeer in the car from basically the, the first stint and it just never went away. And every time you were on his onboard, you're just like, this guy can't hit an apex to save his life. Like the car just won't bite. Whereas in an F1 car, and the, yeah, the setups are locked from qualifying onwards and but you, and you can make your front flap adjustments on, on, on the wing, but you can also play around with diff settings and there's all sorts of entry, mid and exit tools that you've got. And what makes a, a new guy who comes into Formula One really effective is how quickly they get on top of that and learning, okay, this isn't, it's not just about break a little bit later here, turn in a bit differently here. It's right, what, how can I get the car to, to act like mechanically and electronically behave slightly differently? How do I use this stuff? And it all comes together into this colossal data bank to the point where an F1 driver who's really, really in tune with all that stuff, that that becomes a second nature to them as, it, as you know, how how do I change my brake shape slightly differently to manipulate the rotation, that, that kind of thing. I don't, I think it would be hugely, hugely, hugely arrogant to think that only F1 drivers can, can do this. That's absolute nonsense. I would just be absolutely fascinated to see if you if you take our three IndyCar guys who are on the periphery of F1 in whatever way, shape, or form, so Palau, Ward, Herta, which of those guys has have you know what is their makeup? Are they the hyper intelligent, adaptable kind of guy who can bring that stuff on board and absolutely nail it, or are they the kind of guy that sort of just needs to feel it? you know, feel it in their backside in the car and therefore they don't, it doesn't quite work that same way. I'd love to find that out. And I think it's, I mean, it's a great point. And it is one of the things that fundamentally is just a little bit different. And I, you know, it's, you could look at it in different ways, right? Like I, I found this, this past weekend, um, Scott McLaughlin, who has obviously come from supercars. It's been a big story, him coming over to the U S. Uh, I mean, I remember hearing, hearing the conversations we were at, Joseph Newgarden's wedding in at the end of 2019 and they were just like Cindric was there and Roger was there and you were kind of hearing this these rumblings of McLaughlin gonna get gonna come over to the US and everybody's everybody's thought was oh well they're gonna stick him in a cup car like that seemed like the obvious you know transition but they were like no 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 we're, he's he's coming in the IndyCar and and we're we're 
we're not, we haven't we have even tested yet, and that's just what we're going to do because we think he's that good. And uh, and obviously they've they've made the right call with how good he's been in the IndyCar. But a couple of things have stood out to me about him, just as examples of things that you just are not going to hear happening in F1 or, or a driver doing in F1 that in a way is refreshing that IndyCar is not quite so complex, but, but it's just a, it, it, it points out a big difference. Like he turns off all the split times and all the stuff on the dash for his qualifying runs. So he's like, not look, he's just a hundred percent. Like, what does the car feel like? How, you know, he's, he is relying entirely on his own feel for where he's going to extract more lap time than the previous lap or than his previous fastest lap, which is, I thought was like, man, I probably haven't done that since like racing go-karts or something, you know? And, and for most drivers, it's, it's like a total, it sounds like a completely insane thing to say, like what, you're just going to do that. But the other thing was, uh, over the course of this past weekend, he was fastest in practice, stuck it on the pole, you know, the fastest guy over the course of the weekend. And and listening to him talk about second practice, he basically said that for like the whole second part, part of the session, he asked the team just to let him go figure out where he could find some more time. And like, that was it. Like, don't change the car. Don't, you know, whatever. And part of that was because they thought the car was really good, but it's just a, it is a much simpler dynamic that you're dealing with where, and, and part of that is because of the fact that the driver can make such a significant difference in terms of what's going on. So you're coming to these tracks that evolve massively over the course of the weekend. And, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with like seconds worth of low fuel, new tires difference session to session you know it's not it's not like it's evolving because you're making the car faster over the course of the weekend a little bit more like how f1 i think appears a lot of the time um so it is just you know in in kind of talking about where performance come from and how comes from and how you go get it it's just different and or there's or there it's not necessarily that it has to be different but there's just different ways of skinning the cat i think in on the indycar side that can be more driver centric. And I think to your point, you know, guys get in the simulator on the IndyCar side and they've got, you know, you can throw all the diff settings in on the dash and you can do all that stuff. So it's not, it's not as if I think an IndyCar driver going to F1, there are some experiences that they have in elements of your prep for driving IndyCars weekend to weekend that include more complexity, basically. So just the idea of adding more layers to what they have to do over the course of a weekend. I don't think that would stand out. That wouldn't strike me as something that the drivers that we're talking about, the most elite guys in the IndyCar paddock would necessarily struggle with. But I do think to your, to your point about it, like really understanding how all of that goes together and how much bandwidth, like mental bandwidth you want to spend on screwing around with your diff settings versus just driving the car differently that does, you know, that stands out for sure as just a difference in mindset relative to what a lot of these drivers have been doing just for their entire career up until this point, for sure. And it's worth bearing in mind that even within Formula One, I've had many drivers say that just the amount of time it takes to adapt from, say, one engine and one team to another within Formula One, I know both Carlos Sainz and Valtteri Bottas have said that in interviews I mean, in the past, that you kind of need a year to get on top of how the things switch from team to team and from power unit to power unit, let alone when you're coming from a completely 
alien environment. So that tells you just how specialized it is. And I guess, I guess to sum this section up, the key is how long do you have to commit to one of these drivers? If you say, we want to bring Colton Herter over, do you think, Joe, you're at the part, point where you have to say, right, we're going to give them three years? So year one's your, your kind of free hit to feel your way and you'll still have some good performances. Second year to build on that. And then third year, is that the point where you will see them as they can be in Formula One or can it be quicker? I think it could be quicker. I think, well, I put it this way. It has to be quicker than that, right? Like the, you know, Daniel Ricardo. you only need to look to Daniel Ricardo here to know that it needs to be quicker than that. The, I think that, you know, we still operate in a bit of a mode here where the expectations from the driver to to show up and just perform at an elite level are really high. And that's whether that's right or wrong. I mean, I think that there's some you see this movement. I taught we talk about this kind of on our on our side of the the pond a little bit. Uh just about the idea that you have seen this this progression within sports, maybe more generally of, you know, in the U S like I point to the golden state warriors and it's like, you know, joy in what you're doing, mindfulness. These are some of the key principles that that coaching staff instills on that team. Like it's not, it's not like a high school football coach, American football coach, you know, mentality. It's not, it's not this like hard nosed, you know, it, there's discipline built into all of the stuff. You have this underlying, these underlying characteristics to just what are required for a team to perform that depend on everybody being really committed and bought in. But there's been a shift in sports, I feel like, just over the last decade or so in this mentality of how you actually work to create an environment within which people can perform at their best. And that we're recognizing that that has a lot to do with your mental and emotional state and that that's not the same for everybody. And that just whatever showing up and ha- and telling your guy that it's time to go and you better get out there and perform, not everybody responds well to that. And probably no, that's probably not the best way for anybody to operate. Right. And so we haven't really gotten to a place. I don't, I don't see a lot of places within motorsport where that's uh, that shift has happened that dramatically. Uh, and without that, without a commitment also being made on the side of a team to say, we're willing to change the way that we look at some of these things to enable a driver to come in and learn new things, learn in a different way, uh, us to work with them to understand what that really means and be committed to that even for long enough for some discrete period of time. Um, it just seems like it's still going to be dependent on one of these guys really excelling and and excelling quickly, like being able to at least showcase within a handful of races probably that at least that spark is definitely there. And if they can do that, I think, and any of these guys we're talking about are capable of doing that without question, but that's, it's going to depend on that type of thing. It's going to depend on there being at least these moments of brilliance when it really counts. And, and that's going to be, that's going to be moments of brilliance in qualifying. Like, let's face it. There's not another time over the course of an F1 weekend that really matters. I mean, because it's hard to pick out moments of brilliance in a race when you're in these situations, you're, you're already too much on the back foot in terms of where you're at over the course of in an IndyCar race, you could have an incredible stint. And that's the difference between qu- finishing in the top five and outside the top 10 and F1. It just doesn't, it's not that dramatic. Right. So 
And the IndyCar drivers know that, right? Like they know that they've got to be able to figure this out in a two-year deal. If they're in the second half of a two-year deal and they haven't made it happen, they probably, they, they would know now they're already on their way back to IndyCar or whatever at that point. You can't really afford your uh, highlights to be buried in the entry of an Ed Straw driver rating just because you've happened to picked up something picked up something that's happened on lap 34 during an onboard trawl or something like that, Ed. <laughs> I think um, I think there's one, one little thing I wanted to add there just on the, the timeline and sort of the amount of preparation and commitment that would go into it. I think... It's a bit of an extreme example, but what McLaren's doing at the moment, just to even find out if one of those guys is worth putting in for a 60-minute FP1 session, gives you the sort of idea of what one of the more front-running teams would be looking for to get one of these guys in properly. I mean, they're, they're, they're doing what two days in a 2021 car just to find out if Colton's worth putting in for an FP1. Like, that. It's that's extreme. Uh, now, I remember speaking to Andreas Seidel, the McLaren team principal, after that test, and someone asked him if you if Colton was to come into Formula One, how much more would you want to do? And Andreas basically said that there is no answer to that because we would want to do as much as possible. Could we get him in the the twenty one car? How much simulator prep can can we do? Can we get him in? tire testing can we get him in fp1s can we get him in the you know a day or two in abu dhabi after the season in the the 2022 car this was obviously completely hypothetical not to say that mclaren is seriously considering herta for 23 but it was it was a good example of right actually the list of things that you would want to tick off just to make sure you've covered your own bases as much as possible and then you've still got the massive question mark of how do these guys perform when they come into formula one and a point that JR made, I think, really early on in this podcast was the track time and learning the tracks. You're going to have a couple of free practice sessions most weekends, and you're going to get 20, 30 laps in each of those sessions to learn a track you've never driven, except for on the simulator, and how good is your simulator, and how different does it feel? So you're asking an awful lot of, of these guys. So I think that sort of two-year timeline is is absolutely spot on. And as uh, JR pointed out, Daniel Ricciardo, a good example that you don't really get given a lot of time in Formula 1, even when you're a guy like Daniel and you've built up a massive bank of credit as well that you can eat into. One of these guys that comes in, uh, Colton, for example, who has a reputation of great potential, but is he a bit too much of a rough diamond? The second he goes out and goes really quickly one session but shunts the next, you're going to have our typical, we knew that this was going to happen, he can't handle it. And the pressure will be there from the absolute start. So there'd be an awful lot on these guys. I do genuinely believe that that, that if they pieced it all together, that there's no reason they couldn't do a job in, in Formula One. And I'm not saying that in a dismissive way. It's down to them to determine how good a job that is. But if they had the opportunity, the right preparation, the right attitude and the right approach, of course they could come in and, and, and be successful, but you're asking for an opportunity that not a lot of people in Formula 1 are guaranteed. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done, and Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. 
In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. So this is the big question. As you've said, Scott, all three of those could do a job in Formula One. Alex Palau, Pato O'Ward, Colton Herter. Which one would you say is best place, not just to have a shot at F1 in the coming years, but also to make a, a proper go at it, assuming they get a fair crack of the whip? I mean, I'd go... I mean, I'd probably go Herter primarily because he's the most likely to have a team longer term that's willing to go for it. Obviously, we know that Andretti are going absolutely flat out on trying to get into to, to Formula One. I really don't know if they're going to be successful but one of the things that Michael Andretti's talked about before is this arrogance attitude that F1 as a European club has towards the Americans and he's been very clear that you know Colton an American driver would need to be in an American team because we'd understand them we'd give them time we'd protect them from from all this I don't necessarily think that's true but I do understand I do understand where they're coming from I think I think someone like Colton I see him as a driver that my big concern is that when he was in as early as Formula 4, the concern was he's super fast, but he makes too many mistakes and he throws it off and this and the other. You know, Lando Norris joked that his nickname in F4 was Hooligan Herter because he was so quick in the high speed, but he kept binning it. And I just think, like, I now see what he does in IndyCar and he goes from these insane peaks where you're like, this guy's the fastest driver in the field. Like, he, ju- he, he just is. There's, there's, there's no one on his level on his day. And then you're like, oh, he's put it in the wall again. And it's just like, he won't, he just won't learn. He's like the Charles Leclerc of IndyCar. You're just like, come on, man. I know you can do this, but just stop bidding it for goodness sake. So I, I, I think, I think he has tremendous potential. Um, and I think there is potential. There is that interest on the McLaren side. There is the Andretti element as well that could facilitate a longer term project. I get, I get the impression gut feeling my impression is I don't think Pato wowed McLaren in a way that means he gets in the door enough to really get a, a, a shot there but I could be wrong and someone like Palau I, I've I don't even know where he, I don't think anyone knows where the guy's going to be next year so I'm I'm just like by default I'm just sort of backing out of trying to predict whether Alex is even going to get anywhere near Formula One but he'd he'd be he'd be an interesting one to watch as someone seeing how quickly he adapted to IndyCar would be fascinating to see how how he got on in the F1 context. But of the three, I would stick my neck out and say her to buy a nose, but I'm not saying that very confidently. Just to to add on, I, I would put them in the same order probably, that for reasons both inside the car and out, it seems like Colton is best positioned to be able to do this and potentially be successful at doing it. Like, I mean, I know that you, I know that you were, you weren't comparing him directly to Charles Leclerc, but like, if that's what you get out of sticking Colton Herta in your car, you'd probably take it, right? Um, that uh, I think that he's he's the guy to me that has some of the he's he's sort of most free of restraint when it comes to extracting pace, and I just think that in in in, in, in as we've talked about, like 
if there's a guy from that perspective that can get in and manage to create something from nothing somewhere and 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 his talent be able to at some point like the stars kind of aligning and things working right and him being able to pop up to the top of the board you know in a kind of like Sebastian Vettel-esque way when he was young and just like you and it, you know you can't ignore it right like there's just no way that you could say cuz that's what happens for some of these guys like they make enough of an initial impression that that teams and and sponsors and everybody else will just for for years be willing to be like okay well whatever but remember when that happened like remember his first go and was how incredible that was like surely we can figure out a way to get that back out of him and he's still young i mean i think about this just even in the context of indycar everything you said scott was right on the money in terms of kind of how his career has progressed and he's kind of not quite been able to maintain this championship competitor form because he's had some unforced errors but i do think that even just this year in a car that's not as dominant as it was last year he's shown he's shown some progression in terms of like maturity dealing with those situations and i think i guess i think he's still young enough to to still to he's in the right spot basically of having like peak performance while still having an ability to learn and adapt to kind of how things work in a different way. Pato, Pato, frankly, is I think just as good as Colton basically, but I think we'll be a little bit, he has a little bit less going for him just because you've already got Checo in the series. He would, he, I think he'd be more in a mode where it's like, he has to be super impressive to be able to kind of maintain a presence and a standing in this conversation and my my gut feeling is that Alex would be in the same boat. Of the lot of them, Alex is the guy in the IndyCar series that is the most Scott Dixon-esque, right? Like he's the guy that takes everything that's available to him, has a lot of bandwidth for every situation. He's super smooth. He's able to just go out there and like get what's there in, a, in an altogether um, kind of unexciting way basically that it just he's just oh he alex is just at the top of the board and you'd watch his in on board and it doesn't look really hairy or doesn't look necessarily even super impressive when you compare it to to other guys but um he has just kind of that innate ability which maybe in a weird way from a driving style perspective is what would suit getting in an f1 car best of the three of them right away right so they each kind of have these things that are going for them but i think because colton's american and I would just add on that he's an American that people really think of as being an American, right? Like, I think that in some respects was Alexander Rossi's downfall getting to F1 was like he never raced in the U.S. basically. Like, he came he, he came up through the junior formula ranks in Europe, which probably made him best prepared to actually get in an F1 car and be good. But, like, an American audience didn't even know who he was, basically. You know, and so I, Colton's like he's got he's got the most things going for him that might all package together to give him like the the right the right sort of credentials to make it happen. There was one thing that um, I would add for Colton. It's not really my observation, but actually, just seeing as we've got you here, Jr., I'll bring in your uh, podcast husband from the IndyCar side, Jack Benyon, because he made this point. Actually, we were discussing this yesterday in advance of. Uh, 
just just sort of talking through a few things on on her side and he said that while one of the things that I personally have been frustrated by which is that inability to learn from the the mistakes one thing that Jack says he has been very good at is on the technical side that there, there has been such clear steps from fuel saving tire management that kind of thing so he has shown an ability to to adapt and evolve and identify weakness and crucially act on them which I'm sure endears him to you Ed because one of the things we often talk about with uh, F1 drivers that prove really frustrating is just that a level of stagnation in in their development and I think it would be very unfair to say that Colton hasn't improved it, it's just obviously the in a, it's the very high profile stuff that still happens in this sort of similar way as it, as it did before but certainly as a driver he's just refining himself all the time, I, I think, and you can you can see he's becoming a really really interesting interesting prospect. It's just um, he does blot his copybook a little bit with the high profile errors. Just to chip in before Jr. answers that, because you've answered sort of sixty percent of the question I was going to ask, because I, I don't know Colton Herter, so I'm not in a position to judge. I just see what I see from watching the races and, and following the coverage. But he's an interesting case in terms of that ability to learn, because inevitably I'd compare him to Brian Herter, who's obviously a successful driver, always came across as a very intelligent driver. It's a long time since I've crossed paths with him, but I was I was there when he had his Minardi F1 test, for example, all those years ago. So I interviewed him there, and he always struck me as a, a kind of intelligent, rigorous, thinking driver. And that's kind of what you want to see from a driver. It's what you want to see if they're going to be in Formula 1. So my question really is whether Colton has that that similar set of characteristics that's maybe perhaps slightly covered over by if you watch a quick highlights reel of some of the mistakes and some of the reactions to certain things going on in races might be hidden. So, so does he have that, that mentality? I think he does for sure. I mean, as an IndyCar driver, it's so, it's interesting comparing it to formula one from that perspective that you're, you're much more dependent in IndyCar on like making the car better through practice one with all of just the available tools and adjustments that your engineer has, I think then, not that that doesn't matter in Formula One, but there's there's more layers to it in F1. Like, you know, it's always struck me at least that a lot of the weekend to weekend work, you know, through FP1 and FP2 sessions is like, okay, well, we've got these five updates. We got to figure out how to get the most out of these five updates before we're going to screw around with changing. Like, like if we get the if we get the max out of these five updates, then that's going to be like five, four tenths or something or five tenths, you know what could what could changing springs possibly end up being for us so it's in that respect i feel like it's a little i mean even when i had my f1 test i sort of remember this that it was you know paul and i were both kind of battling with the same thing and it took like 2 days to actually change something on the car because we were just going through a program we were going through a program of different fuel loads and different you know all of the different you know engine modes and all of this kind of different stuff so in indycar just because of the nature of it, because you through practice are, you're like always on five gallons and you're always just trying to figure the car out. Basically it's not because you're always focused on qualifying more than you are on the race, but it's just, you're trying to, you need to be able to create as repeatable a run plan, five lap run to five lap run to five lap run to five lap run, because the car isn't going to change that much between qualifying and the race. Like if you make the car better for qualifying, you're making it better for the race. There's not a bunch of other things you're having to deal with. You're trying to just constantly work on the dampers, the springs, the, the, 
you know, roll bars, the roll centers, like all of these things that are in and of themselves, each five minute changes or less on the pit lane. Like you don't have to roll the thing back into the garage or do any of this stuff. Um, you know, that's, that I think enables indie. It's just, if you're, if you're a good indie car driver, if you're performing at a high level, you're used to being really involved in that conversation. And so any of these guys, Colton in particular is a driver that he knows exactly what he needs from the car and he knows exactly what that feeling's like. And his engineer knows what it is. And so anytime you see him go out and stick it on a pole or be one, be that guy, be, be his best self. It's in part because he's helped his, he's worked with Nathan O'Rourke, his engineer to get the car to the place that he can go be that guy in that qualifying session, you know? So I, I think from that perspective, he's definitely, I think he's always been good at figuring that out and knowing what he needs and knowing how to explain that to an engineer. Yeah, this is why it would be great to see him have a proper shot in Formula One and really work through that and show it because there's no question he's got a tremendous amount of speed. So hopefully there will be that opportunity soon enough. Well, thanks very much to Scott Mitchell and special guest J.R. Hildebrand. If you like what you heard from J.R., there's plenty more of that on the Race IndyCar podcast, which is available free to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Head to therace.com as there's loads to read there and also check out our YouTube channel. With plenty of August behind us now, we're not far off restarting the season at Spa, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.